All right, everyone, we are on to episode 105 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute, Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. All right, our guest today is Dr. Rob Kelly, and he is going to share his own story of recovery and how he discovered at the end of his addictive process, being homeless, being on the street, crying, realizing that he couldn't stop, that he discovered that he could change his mindset. And in changing his mindset, he could change his life. And so on this episode, he shares his story and how he does it. And I have to say, I really love Rob's energy and passion. It really comes through and just the ability to really connect with that potential of change that we all have and really bring a voice to that. So I loved the interview and I think you will enjoy it as well. Before we start, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get us a lot of exposure and helps people find the podcast. And if you'd like to continue the conversation online after the podcast, please think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online there. All right, everyone, let's go ahead and uh, start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Dr. Rob Kelly, and he's going to share a little bit of his own story of recovery. And we're also going to talk about the neurobiology of addiction and neuroplasticity and and uh, recovery in, in that way. So, Rob, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you. My name is Dr. Rob. Uh, they call me the addiction doctor. I specialize in alcohol and drug addiction, and I love what I do. Um, and I've been around for quite some time now. It's just absolutely amazing. Awesome. So let's just jump right in and, and talk about your story. Because a lot of times I think people who work in the addiction field, not everyone, but a lot of them have somehow been impacted by addiction, either personally or family or something like that. So let's hear your story. Well, my story begins uh, very early in, in life. The age of nine is when I took my first drink of alcohol. and um, I, didn't, I know now, but I didn't know then that my whole life changed. I, I was thrown into a musical family, so I'm at the age of nine. I'm on stage playing every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Very nervous child. Never thought I'd fit in anywhere, which is um, another trait of my alcoholism. And I took that first drink, and it was just phenomenal. All the nerves went, you know, and as I went through my teens, I could speak to girls. It was just an amazing concoction that I'd found that I thought was the answer to all my problems. And at the time, I guess it was. I went to a normal school and um, I came from where, what we call a council estate and they call the projects in America. And so average poor family. But I always wanted something different. And I know that now. My drinking through school was manageable. And then I was a, a session musician at a place in Manchester for a while. And then 
I applied to Abbey Road uh, studio and after seven auditions, I finally got a slot there as their bass player and I played with Elton John and Bowie and Queen and all them great guys drinking in music and it was just a great time, you know, it was just phenomenal. But I put myself through college, so I went to Oxford University, first person in my family to go to college. Of course, with being an alcoholic, I have the addicted brain, so I either do something to the extreme or I don't do it at all. And I did it to extreme, I went to Oxford and... You know, it was great drinking again, just had a great time at college. Don't remember most of it because by this time I'm drinking heavily, so I'm a daily drinker, and then come out, joined the police force, got fired from there. And that's the first time I remember that alcohol was having an effect on my daily life, though just thought it was a bit bad luck. Didn't really think, you know, it was the alcohol, but I got fired and then I started my own business and, you know, all through a business, I'm drinking, and, and I'm successful, you know, because again, I have an addictive brain, so I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do amazing things, which I did. And so we're running a million dollar company, gets married, and and uh, then kind of thought I had a drink problem because everybody was telling me, and then I had, a, I had a child and promised my wife I'd never drink again. And four hours later, I'm, I'm at the bar drinking, and then we had the second child, and I put my hand on the Bible and swore I'd never drink, and. Sure enough, a few hours later, I'm drunk again in the bar and just couldn't seem to stop. And then obviously I convinced myself that I didn't need to stop. And um, it was just absolute mayhem towards the end. I, there's a couple of things in the house that happened. I mean, I uh, I remember coming downstairs one day, middle of the morning, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, with trying to find vodka in the house. And when I finally found it, my wife snatched it off me and, and told me to go back to bed said, you've had enough, Rob. She's probably right, but instead of going back to bed, I remember taking a kitchen knife out and stabbing her three times. Wow. And then getting on the, getting on the car, getting to the airport as quick as possible, I went to Spain before they could arrest me, and then came back home three months later. She did press charges to find out that she'd left. And uh, it was just, you know, my kids, my wife, uh, a few months after, I'd lost everything and was that my parents and then parents to friends, friends to acquaintances and then the acquaintances to the streets. And I slept rough on the streets for about 13 months, just in bus shelters and cardboard boxes and begging for money. And it was just a, a horrendous time, it really was. So you went all the way to uh, the top, so to speak, and had all the outward appearance of success, but this alcohol was playing out in your life in uh, horrible ways with all that intensity too that went with it. Yeah, I mean, again, extreme. I'm an extremist, of course. And I did. I had the watches. I had the Porsches. I had the big house on the hill. I, you know, from outside the family, we looked to be doing really well and really amazing family. But, you know, behind the curtains and the blinds of the house, uh, it was absolute mayhem in that house. There was so much stuff that I caused, so much damage that I caused that, um, it's just phenomenal looking back on it. It's just crazy days for me. Absolutely insane. Right. So you got to the end there. You're homeless. You're living on the streets. How did you get out of that? Well, I've been on the streets for about 14 months. And uh, I know for a fact that I was going to die on the streets. In actual fact, I did die on the streets twice. I committed suicide four times. But actually twice, I had to my heart stopped. And they brought me back again. So I knew I was going to die in the streets. I remember one morning just walking down the streets. It was pouring down with rain. Someone had stolen my shoes from the night before when I was in a stupor unconscious. 
and I dropped down to my hands and knees and I just started crying from from my belly. And uh, I just, I, the crazy thing is I wasn't crying because I'd lost my kids or my wife or my business or parents, anything like that. I was crying because the first time in my life I realized that I could not stop drinking alcohol and I was broken and I was done. I mean, I was just done. I was just sobbing. I remember looking up to the sky and I'm an atheist, by the way, at the time. I looked up to the sky and I said, if there's a God up there, I can't do this on my own anymore. And my life seems to change for about two or three minutes after that. Some guy come up to me and I still want help. And I said, yes. And I promised myself that, that if I got off the streets, because less than 3% go off the streets in Manchester and the rest die on the streets. And if I ever got off the streets, I would spend the rest of my life helping not only alcoholics and addicts, but helping families and reuniting families and stuff like that. I always knew there was something deeper than just, you know, stopping drinking, going to 12-step meetings. I knew there was something different, and that's what got me intrigued in uh, neuroscience. Wow. So you reached that moment where, like you said, I, I think you said, like, I can't stop. I'm powerless against this. It's got me. And, that, and that's what intrigued me, because everything else that I did was successful. And yet I couldn't stop drinking. And I think a lot of it was because it was legal and it wasn't frowned on. So, you know, that was like everybody can. And of course, I looked at everybody else with impunity when they were drinking going, well, they ain't suffer consequences. So why am I suffering consequences? It's just I need to get a grip of myself and I need to be more careful how much I drink. But the bottom line is, is when I enjoyed my drinking, I couldn't control it. And when I controlled it, I didn't enjoy it. Right. So that should have been alarm bells there, but I, I didn't see it then. I mean, I really was blind to it completely, in denial. Yeah, and it's crazy how denial can work. I mean, we can look from the outside and, and, it, and it can look so obvious, but once we're in the midst of it, it's like our brain is uh, just unable to step out of that denial state. It was, and it took a long time. I mean, for me, it took the homelessness and the realization that everything was gone and I was broken. I mean, nobody could have told me before that, that, you know, I would, I would get out of this or I could control it or, you know, in some day I could drink normally. I was born with the addictive brain, the self-sabotaging brain. I know today that my brain wants to kill me and make it look like an accident. And I have to be careful about that on a daily basis. I have a daily reprieve. It talks about alcoholics. None of us talks about it, but my studies go far more into the brain than I think most people have gone. Uh, since the probably 40s and 30s and 20s when they were really looking at some real parts of the brain that that affected. And then it ain't quiet after a bit because alcoholism and uh, drug addiction became a dirty word. And, you know, we, we didn't really want to touch it because at the end of the day, there's no money in people recovering from alcohol and drugs. There's no money in it. So nobody's researching it. Nobody's going in and finding exactly what's going on. So it's left to people like me to do our own research, not backed by anybody or, or, or financed by anybody, but just over periods of time with, with thousands of people experimenting and testing and stuff like that, have, have I come up with, with the solution, we think, to, to, a, to a really serious problem. So you were on the streets. You had this moment where you're, yeah, belly crying from your gut and you get help and you say, I want to I understand what's going on in my brain or, or in the neuroscience of it. Yeah, that intrigued me. You know, why, why, first of all, why doesn't anybody know uh, anything about this disease? Because I go to my doctors, I think you're an alcoholic, so what does it do to stop drinking? Right, well, that's good advice, right? <laughs> well, 
alcohol got little to do with his alcoholism. I know that today, but that's what they used to say in back in the day. You know, the seventies and eighties, he just stopped drinking. Well, if I could do that, I wouldn't have a problem with alcohol, and I won't be. An I alcoholic. know, yeah. That's so common. It's like just just stop drinking. I know. If I could, I would. Exactly. I would if I could. You think I've been through all this? If I could just stop. I, the thing is today, though, I know that the alcoholism is the only self-diagnosed illness in the world. Just because I have fit five DUIs does not make me an alcoholic. You know, I know people that drank more than me. I know people that drank longer than me. But something happens when I put that alcohol inside my body that my brain goes into overload. So therefore, it's wired different. I always remember when I was just before I was homeless, I was waiting outside a liquor store one morning and it opened at 6 a.m. Not the liquor store, but the newspaper part of it. But the guy always knew that I needed alcohol. So he would serve me under the counter at like 6 a.m. I'm waiting outside. It's pouring down with rain in Manchester. It's freezing cold. I'm there in a, in a pair of shorts, a pair of flip-flops and a T-shirt, and I'm sweating profusely because I'm going into DTs. I walked in. I'm shaking like crazy. I give my 10 pounds to the guy. He puts the bottle of vodka on the counter. I grab the bottle, and my whole being just went... <sighs> And it was like that whole body just changed. And I remember looking at the bottle because I'd not even opened it. I just had my hand on it. And there was the realization, it's not the alcohol. And there set off my studyings into the depths and the realms of what is alcoholism and can we keep it on a reprieve and can we recover from that? And, I, I, you know, we can today. We're never cured of it because we have the self-sabotaging neural pathways that are always going to go down that route no matter what happens. So in that moment when you grab that bottle, even though you hadn't had the alcohol in your system yet, you felt the change in your body. My whole being was like someone had just told me I'd won $500 or something. Right. I mean, I was chatting to the, to the dad, some guy come in for his newspaper. I'm like, hey, good morning. How are you? And you know, I couldn't even put two words together 20 seconds early when I'm stood outside waiting for him to unlock the door. And it's, it's right then I realized that, oh my goodness, I'm onto something here. Right, right. So you started to see something in that moment. You had that moment of insight that you stumbled upon and you happened to, to f not just know it, but feel it and recognize it. And you said, I got to do something with this. That's exactly what it was. It was like, whoa, hang on a second. You know, I kept looking at the bottle and I kept feeling this goodness inside my heart and my head and my body stopped shaking. That's the weird part. My body had stopped shaking and I stopped sweating. So the DTs was already starting to disappear before I even took a mouthful. And I was like, oh my goodness, this needs to be researched. And I would tell people and try and ask doctors and they just say, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, you, you crave alcohol. Well, Today, I know it's impossible to crave for something that's not already in your body. So it's not the craving that gets me. It's my thought pattern that gets me. And my, my brain, my prefrontal cortex, the only job my PFS is, has is to come up with an answer, and it has to come up with an answer as quick as humanly possible. The only problem with my prefrontal cortex is it doesn't have to be the right answer. So the answer to all my problems that was alcohol or drugs. And I find the alcoholic brain is wired different. See, what happens in my brain is the hypothalamus at the back of the brain, just near the prehistoric brain. It's a fight or flight part of the brain. It secretes into the brain when there's danger near. It's also a survival part of the brain. So for the normal person, it tells them to drink water 
and to eat food to survive. Primal basic instincts. That's what we need to do to survive. With the alcoholic, it tells us to drink alcohol. That's why alcoholics can go weeks or days without even touching water or food because the brain is not telling us to eat. The brain is telling us that we need alcohol inside our body to maintain so we don't get sick. And that's the part that we've studied or I've studied that most people don't know about is when you're suffering from untreated alcoholism, you do not have a choice whether you drink or not. That choice is taken away because the brain is saying to survive, you need alcohol. And that's why I don't know anybody that's a real alcoholic that's turned back halfway to the liquor store and thought, this is a bad idea. It just never happens. Not with me anyway. Right, right. So as you were talking earlier, do you think that, like you said, that moment you first tried alcohol at 10 years old had something to do with that or your brain was primed for that experience? I think the brain was primed for it. I think the brain was going to get hold of anything at all that would take me away from me. But I know that I'm friends because I would say, oh my God, to my friends, you should taste this, it's awful. They would take a taste and spit it out and go, oh, that's terrible. Right. Whereas I would follow it and go, oh my God, this is amazing. I don't know anybody that says that. Everyone says, oh, it's okay. Or, oh, God, that's horrible. I was like, I couldn't get enough of the stuff. I didn't like the taste, right. but I wasn't going to stop. It did something in your brain that was just like, this is it. This is what you need to survive. Yes. My brain, if I, if I was on a monitor, my brain lit up. And this is it. This is the solution to every nervous, every situation, every not fitting in, you know, every not feeling good enough. This is the, the, the answer to all them problems. And for a period of time, it did its job. It, it was absolutely amazing. You know, I got places I shouldn't have been. I, I had no fear about doing stuff. I mean, it was just an, I, I dated girls well out of my league because I had the courage and confidence to ask them because I was drunk most of the time. Right, right. So tell me a little bit, what do you think primed your brain for this experience? Well, I, I know today that alcoholism, and I speak of alcoholism because it's different to addiction, but I'm not going to really get into that because it upsets a lot of people. But, you know, in the early days, people will talk, Carl Jung will talk about alcohol and drug difference, the differences. But with alcohol, with me, I was born with the, with the alcoholic addictive brain. It's as simple as that. Now, I know people with the addictive brain who would be chronic alcoholics who's never tasted alcohol because the, you, you see them guys running multi-million dollar companies because of the addictive brain. So when I first took alcohol in my body, my brain is wired differently to the, to the, the, the lead guitar player next to me, for instance. Right. You know, it just, my whole brain lit up and went, wow, this is it. And that's what my brain kept telling me. Of course, when you do that, the part of the brain, the fight or flight kicks in and goes, this is it. This is, this is what we've been wanting all along. And I also think it's tied into your childhood. Whatever's alcoholism, there's always trauma. So when you're a child, you're already being told that you're not good enough, that you can't do this, stop messing around, behave yourself, don't talk. When you're being told all these rules, that obviously goes into either the conscious or the subconscious brain that tells us that we're not good enough and we should keep quiet. And we live in fear most of the time. Where's our next meal coming from? No, you can't afford to go on that trip at school. Yes, no, we can't afford a briefcase for you. You're going to have to take a plastic bag or something. All this stuff made me feel less than. And when I took the alcohol, it made me feel perfect. It took all that away. It did. And most of it was primed into, into me that. I mean, today I still have them 
them thoughts is I'm never going to be thin enough. I'm never going to be tall enough. I'm never going to be blonde enough. And I'm never going to be rich enough. Right. And that's the way it is because that's just the alcoholic traits. So kind of going back to that moment again where you're, you know, you're homeless, you know, you're crying from your gut. You start to study this, the neurobiology or the neuroplasticity of the brain. And, and what did you find? I found that we can we can change the way we think. We can change the way self-sabotaging neural pathways react to a, to a thought pattern that's coming in. Now, only 10 years ago did the health uh, fraternity, medical fraternity, find out about neuroplasticity. But I was I was onto this some 20 years ago when I knew that given the right information, with the repetition strengthens and confirms idea, the neurolinguistic programming that we can change a self-sabotaging, I'm going to drink despite anything, thought pattern to our health and we can redirect. So what that does, it gives us a time frame before that neural pathway shoots down the self-sabotage or the healthy. We've timed that or I've timed that at 7.3 seconds there or thereabouts. Sometimes five, sometimes 10. We pick something in the middle. We say 7.3 seconds where you have a choice today, where you never had a choice before. Knowledge is very important with alcoholism. You ask most people out there, what's an alcoholic? The answer that they will shoot back to you straight away with full confidence is somebody who drinks too much alcohol. It can be furthest from the truth. That is not the case. Alcohol is a bit like spots to my chicken pots. Some say, hey, Rob, I see you've got chicken pots. How do you know? I can see the spots all over you. Well, actually, that's just a symptom. What I actually have is a viral infection and I'm very sick. But you can see the spots and find it funny. It's the same with the disease of alcoholism. The alcohol is the spots. What I have is a disease inside my mind that you can't see. Therefore, you can't understand that because there's no cure for it, there's no finances or money to study alcoholism because it's not profitable. There's not a pill I can take. And that's when we get tied up in all that red tape that nobody or very few people are actually studying this because nobody wants to talk about it and there's no profit in it. Now, if I had uh, food poisoning or, well, not even food poisoning, if I had some sort of crazy illness that came along, the pharmacy companies would be all over it trying to get a cure for it because there's money in that. There's no cure for alcoholism. There is no, just like there's no cure for food poisoning. We just have to make sure that we take a few simple steps to make sure I never get food poisoning or alcoholism again. So it's like the drinking is the symptom of this underlying disease in in the brain and the way the brain is operating and thinking and processing. And the alcoholism is the the symptom of that. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. When you think about it and you're running through your brain and you look at how an alcoholic, you know, especially the bottle of vodka with me and how it affects and how we can't put anything else, the loss of children, wives, car, kids, everything, homeless, you can't put anything else before alcohol. There has to be something serious in the brain that we can't control. And that's when I looked into the hypothalamus and going, hey, we can't control this. So even though my dad was like, we can just get a grip of yourself, bro, for God's sake, just for the kids' sake. No, I can't do that. And that's why I was passionate. I'm not only passionate, I'm aggressively passionate about this. Because there's so many warped lives out there, blameless children or bums and dads who can't stop drinking. And they grow up blaming parents going, well, if only she didn't drink too much. Well, if she's an alcoholic, she didn't have a choice. Now, there's a difference between an alcoholic and a Friday night drunk. Right, right. I want to make that clear to the listeners. An alcoholic is a very sick person. Somebody who's a heavy drinker or puts alcohol before the children 
because they just like to drink is not an alcoholic. They have, they should be held responsible. This is this is the talks that we had with the police about arresting people. There's a difference between a Friday night drunk and an alcoholic. One needs hospitalization or treatment. The other needs to be locked up until he gets sober. Right. And it's the same thing over and over again, but people don't understand lack of knowledge once again, which is frustrating. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think uh, that's part of the reason I do the podcast is to get good information out there about addiction. So I have another question. You mentioned earlier neuro-linguistic programming. Talk about that. So neuro-linguistic programs goes back, goes back many, many years. It's not a new thing. It's a new buzzword, NLP. Let's do NLP. You know, it goes back, oh, hundreds of years, I think. But basically, it's, it's a set of uh, routines and a set of thought patterns in our head where you can base uh, a baseline that we can change them. The way we change them is through leading the brain into answers and thought patterns where you know the end result. You've also got to listen to the body. So a, a prime example of the body is gut feeling. You know, I've got this gut feeling that's not right. You know, people smile and laugh at that. Or, well, trust your gut, but nobody ever does. But back in the tribal days, that gut feeling used to wake tribesmen up. They used to, they knew there was danger there or they had to be alert and they'd wake the rest of the tribe up. And it was a very, it was the only way they would find out. But today we don't listen to our gut feeling. We don't listen to our body. And it's the same with the, with the, with the mindset. We don't think we can do certain things because we make practical decisions based on fear today because of the world we live in. NLP kind of, it's intriguing. NLP can redirect them, can redirect you away from fear, can redirect self-sabotaging neural pathways and thought patterns. And that's the key to living not only a healthy life, but a successful life. Because it's a bit like quantum physics. You know, the quantum physics tells me that, let's say a basketball court, I could be up to 25 places on that basketball court at the same time. That's what it tells me. And I believe that. It's a science. It's true. It's been proven. So where do I want to be on that basketball court? Well, I want to be over near the hoop so I can just put the goal in, be the hero. How do I get over to the hoop? I walk over and I take that position. And that's what life's about. If you can visualize there using NLP or any any other mind control in the nicest possible way, and you can vision yourself over near that hoop, just walk over and take the position. Don't interview for it. Don't ask for it. Walk over and take it. You're already there. And it, therefore, you, once you start doing this and understanding that the, we use a small percentage of the brain and how powerful the brain really is in influencing yourself and other people, then you can see the life for what it is and you can start achieving your goals on a daily basis because you understand that you can be there. There's nothing stopping you from achieving the goals apart from your self-doubt and fear and stuff. If you think you're not good enough or you think you can't do something, I want to apologize because somebody has put that there, guys. And I apologize for that. For someone in your family or friends or schooling has put that thought pattern into your head that you're not good enough. That is false. There's nothing different from me and you and the guy running Amazon or Facebook. There's no difference. An idea came, they believed in it, and they ran with it. And that's the way it is. Everyone thinks you should leave school, get married, have two kids, work at the local gas store or, or the local electric company, retire and die. Says who? Says who, guys? That's what I want to know. Why can't we follow the addictive brain, the smart brain? Why can't we follow it? Because the addictive brain is the smartest brain in the world and can achieve anything that you put to mind to it. But you need to visualize it. If you can't visualize it, you cannot 
achieve it. When people come to me and want to improve their life, I take them to the Porsche dealership. I take them to the Bentley and Rolls Royce dealership. I get them to sit in the car and test drive it. I take them to the million dollar houses where I live and I get them to walk around with a realtor. And what happens is they start visualizing it. So when we actually get there, when they can afford that Porsche or that Bentley, the brain's not freaking out going, oh my God, this is amazing. No, it's going, hey, we've been here before. This is pretty cool. And that's how you have to manipulate the brain to be thinking that you can do this. Anybody can. So much. Yeah, I I would agree. So much of our limitations we put on ourselves are manufactured by just that faulty thinking. Like if you just begin to know how to think differently, you can make those shifts. Much of it is just our own limitations we put on ourselves. Yeah, own limitations and self-dialogue is I found is very important. So the spoken word has so much effect on the body and the mind. And here's something that actually happened in my practice. Uh, a, a patient left us and we got a call. My assistant come in and says, oh my God, I've got some bad news. John D, who's just left the office, they've called the office and his father's just died in a car accident. They want you to call him. So I called him and look, I've got some bad news, pull over to the side of the road. I told him he was in a mess. I mean, he couldn't speak. He was blubbering. Apparently he was sweating. He was shaking. He couldn't drive the car. Yeah, I think he actually wet himself. I mean, he's lost control of all the body, the poor guy. I told him I'll get somebody with him. I put the phone down and literally 20 seconds later, my PA come running in. She was white. I said, what's wrong? She said, it's John L, not John D. So I said, you call John L, tell him I'll call John D back. I called him back. We made it right. And he was so grateful that we'd made a mistake, obviously. But it got me thinking that his body went into this convulsion, this absolutely waste of, you know, he couldn't do anything at all. I'd only told him over the phone with my words. And yet his body reacted in such a way that he had no control over it. So if that happens with bad news, what good can we do with good stuff? When we tell people good stuff, when we tell ourselves good stuff, because when I say thank you to somebody, my dopamine's released in my head. I get a good feeling about that. And it's this is the stuff that you need to know. So if I drop a pen on the floor, I'm not a stupid idiot, which that's what I used to do. I just dropped a pen on the floor. I'm actually awesome. I'm actually going to achieve something today. And, and I keep thinking like that. And I never let, I never put myself down and I do not allow people around me to put myself down. And I'm always lifting people up because when you lift people up, it's the best feeling in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, and the power of our mind is so great when we open ourselves to that process and we allow it to take place. We can do great things. I totally agree with you. It makes me very excited because I I believe the same thing. It's like you can change and shift your thinking about it and you can create feelings that move you forward and bring more joy to the world and more joy to people and how we talk to ourselves and how we talk to others. Yeah, it can, it can change. You know, people you say to me, Rob, it's impossible. And well, I'm going to do that. It's impossible to go to America and become as famous as you are. It's impossible, Rob. Uh, really? I say I'm possible. I don't say impossible. I say I'm possible. And I go over, I came over here and I did exactly what it says on the tent. I followed direction and the end result was exactly the same. The power of the mind is absolutely phenomenal. If I get a check for it, it might be a bad mood. Say I'm in a bad mood one day. Uh, not these days because I'm never in a bad mood. But if I'm in a bad mood and I get a check through the mail for $250, instantly my mood is lifted. Well, imagine if you can do that without the check. 
because it's only a piece of paper. It's not going in your account yet. You're not richer. You can't spend it. It's a piece of paper. But that piece of paper has changed my mind in seconds. Imagine if I can do that on my own without the piece of paper. And that's what I've I've designed this program. And that is what it's all about, to get that lift in the morning as if you've won a million dollars. And believe it or not, once you start acting like that, it will come. It will come. Whether it's the universe or God or luck or whatever you want to say, every person who has actually become something or somebody and and uh, been very, very successful, they will tell you the same thing. There's a secret to it. There's a secret behind this. And the secret is self-dialogue and self-belief. That if you want to do it, you can. I get my guys to write checks for themselves. You know, I want to be a millionaire. Okay, let's write a check for a million dollars. How long do you want to do it? In five years? Okay, let's put a date on five years. Most people we've done that to has cashed it because that's how much belief we have in them and they have in themselves when we finish. Because at the end of the day, you sit in front of somebody that wants to change their life. I always say to them, if we could swap places for 30 seconds, all your problems would be over and you would be very successful because we don't see ourselves as other seers. And if we did, we're very powerful people, very powerful people. We can achieve anything we want to achieve. I totally see what you're saying and agree with you. Like our mindset is so powerful. How do you begin to help someone believe that? If that makes sense. Like, yeah, it does. Because a lot of times they start out as like, yeah, yeah, you're saying all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our mindset's so important. But you have to believe that your mindset is so important, if that makes sense. It does. And and uh, we have we have an assessment. And I will only take on the people I think that are going to make it and, and are worthy and I believe in. And and that's a big part of the deal is you you can't really like, you can't do this falsely or lie about it because uh, one, you don't believe it. So they're not going to believe it. Uh, but secondly, most people growing up as kids uh, never got enough attaboys off the parents, especially dad if it's a guy. And so they've grown up like that, you know, and you start telling them how good they are at stuff and how amazing they are. And you look at their qualities and, Let's forget the bad qualities or the, what the people have put in their mind. Let's look at the good stuff, you know, that we, that we need to focus on. Repetition strengthens and confirms when you're telling someone they're amazing. And you're using the exact wordage as well with the different patients, you know, that you are possible. This is amazing. You are amazing. Look at what you've done so far. Look what we can achieve. You know, if I told you a lie right now, you might believe it, you might not. But if I told you a lie often enough, you're going to believe it. And here's the crux. If I told you a lie real often enough, I'm going to start to believe it. And that's how the mind works. Anything's possible as long as you believe it. And someone tells you enough times you can. The only reason why surgeons or pilots or musicians are any good is because people tell them they are. I have a very good friend and probably heard of him. He's called Gordon Ramsay. He's the, he's the chef on TV. And I was at his house once having dinner. And he turned around to me and he said, do you know why I'm the best chef in the world, Ron? And I says, because you can cook pretty well. And he went, hell no, because I tell everybody. <laughs> and that blew my mind. I'm like, so I started calling myself the best addiction doctor in the world about eight years ago. And it stuck. And I believe I am today. But more importantly, other people believe I am. Right. Now, what's different from me to 20 years ago? Well, nothing. I have the same brain. But it's the belief. It's the belief that I can do be this person. And that there, that second when he said that, I just thought it was absolutely mind-blowing, you know, because I, because I tell everybody I am. I'm like, God, I've not got the guts to do that. And he says, why? Stop living in fear. I have a great saying today. It says, uh, stop dreaming a living and start living the dream. Because you get one shot at this. You can either set it on dreaming 
about running that big company or becoming that musician or whatever it may be or dating that girl. You can sit there all your life wondering because one day you're going to go to bed when you're 20, you're going to wake up when you're 60, it's all going to be over. So why not go for it? I had a friend of mine who was wanted to be a, he wanted to be a carpenter, but he was also a musician. He got a chance to, he got married. He got a chance to go down to London and to cut a record deal, but he didn't want to go because he wanted to keep his nine to five job. And so he, he, he passed up on it and the band become very famous. And uh, that year after the band become famous, the, the, the company he worked for let him go because they cut back. Fear, fear based, you know, practical decision, he thought. Look after the family, stay in a steady job. No, you might as well chase your dream if you're going to get let go anyway. Chase it, chase it, chase it with a passion and it will happen. You can direct your life to anything you want to do. And people don't know this. Absolutely. And, and we have the power within us to do that. And I totally agree. What makes us good at what we do is our own belief and our ability to do it, you know, and, and our confidence in it. And people will pick that up as well. And it will transfer into them, maybe not all the time, but into them. And, and they can feel it. And then they can make those shifts. Yeah. It's, it, I want the, the, the only people that don't feel it sometimes are the people who are jealous and, and kind of want to be you. But if you walk into a room with 10 people and you've got a frown on your face, most people are going to frown back. If you walked in five minutes later, same people with a smile on your face, most people are going to smile back. So you have a big part to play in people around you and what, and what you can achieve with the belief of people around you. I, I had a friend of mine once, he said to me, Rob, uh, you, how much you earn? I said, 30 grand a year. He said, do you want to earn 40? I said, yeah, but I've got no idea how to. He said, start hanging around with the guys that do. So I started hanging around with the guys that were 40,000 40, a year. And the next one wanted to earn 50 and I hung around them guys. Because we are the people. I have a great saying, it's an old saying, it's show me your friends, I'll show you your future. I think that's so true. You know, you have to keep company with these people on the same level as you. I have a saying that just came to me once and we have teachers who said, don't share your dream with people who don't share your dream. Absolutely. So true. Because they will have the same thinking that will go back and forth and propel you forward. Find the people that are living the life that you want. Yeah, and humbly, I guess I'd say humbly be with them, you know, and you'll grow with them, and they'll grow with you, and they'll inspire you as well on the way. You know, I used to come with some crazy ideas. I, I want to be a, I want to be a famous bass player to tell people, and uh, some people would go, "Don't be silly. You just you just robbed from the from the projects. You know what what the hell can you do?" But other people around me, especially went to Abbey Road, said, "Hey, yeah, good. Can I help? How can I help you do that?" Oh, yeah, I can see that, Rob. I can see you playing there. You, God, you're good enough. Easy. And all this stuff. And all of a sudden, I get confidence. You see, the problem as well with, with, with people that are very good at what they do is people don't tell them often enough. And that's why a lot of people, musicians and footballers and all them guys, and myself included, we, we double, we double doubt ourselves all the time. We question ourselves because when I asked somebody once, I said, do you think I'm doing a good job? And he went, Oh, God, you are amazing, Rob. And I said, why don't you tell me? And he says, well, because you already know. I'm like, yeah, but I don't. That's the thing, you know. I worked with a very, very amazing surgeon in San Antonio once, and uh, nobody told him he was good. And in the end, he just he come away from practice and, and retired early, and yet only to find out that everyone thought he was a god, and everyone was just in awe of what he did, but nobody told him. And that man died, a sad man. We need to communicate these things to people. I I compliment three people every single day. And if I can lift somebody up, I'm always lifting. I never drop them down. doesn't matter what they come to me with. You know, I'm always agreeing, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, we, we can. You want to stop drinking? Oh, that's easy. 
what we're going to do after that. What do you want to achieve after that? Because if you're if you're going to, if you're going to bed on a Sunday night going, oh God, it's Monday, we got to go to work tomorrow. You need another job. If you're going home going, oh, the wife's at home, it's going to nag at me. You need a new wife. Stop living the life for somebody else. Start living the life to the full attention because I'm telling you, I've said it once before, I'll say it again. You'll go to bed when you're 20 and you wake up when you're 60 going, what the hell just happened? Why not wake up in that million-dollar house with, with the cars of your dream, with the wife of your dream, with the job of the company of your dream? Why not wake up there and go to bed Sunday night going, I can't wait for Monday morning because that's what I do. And that's what all my patients do from the past. It's like, stop living, and you just said it before, stop living in this cookie-cutter lifestyle that people think you should be. When me and my wife got married, just before we got married, and we had a big argument, and uh, we both sat down after it, and she said to me, and I'll never forget it, she said, well, that's just the way marriage is. And I said, says who? And we both looked at each other and went, wow, yeah, says who? Exactly. So now and find me and my wife dancing in the morning in the bathroom, laughing every day, throwing stuff at each other, joking all day long because we made our own plans that's away from the cookie-cutter plan of this is what you need to do when you're married. No, you make your own rules out there, guys, because the guys that are making rules are living the dream. That's right. Stop that's right. living, guys. Oh, Rob, thank you so much, uh for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. I, I love your enthusiasm. It's just contagious and um, it's right up my alley because yeah, I believe so much what you're saying and uh, it's been in my own life this, the same way, even through tragedy and difficulty. It's so much how we choose to look. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves, you know, I mean, you know, sometimes we can get caught in those old thinking patterns and, and kind of have to shake ourselves and go, wait a minute. No, I don't have to believe that. I don't have to think that. I can, I can go do this or that. Um, no one's stopping me but myself. Exactly. And, and listeners, listen to me real carefully. Just remember the two words. Whenever you want to do anything or whenever you think you can't do anything, do what I do. Just go, says who? Says who? Says who? Yeah. And do it. Just do it. You can be a leader. Most leaders start by doing something crazy. Everyone's going, oh, I don't think you can do that. And his mindset somewhere else says, says who? There's no rules with life. You can do anything you want. It's phenomenal. I love life. Awesome. So for anybody out there who's listening, what would be the one thing you would want to tell them? There is nothing impossible. You are possible. If you believe it, if you can visualize it, you can do it. There's no doubt about that in my mind whatsoever. And stop letting fear run your life. If you're thinking of starting business, start it. See, starting businesses, uh, taking the plunge, uh, being above everyone else, it's just like having a baby. You are never ready. You have to say, this today's the day. Today's the day I'm going to make that step forward to being the person I want to be. And I'm talking about you could want to be the best father in the world. Take that step. You could be want to become a millionaire. Take that step. Professional footballer, take the step. Plan out how you're going to get there. Quantum physics, walk over and take it. Go for it. Oh, thank you. How can people find you? If they want more information about you, how can they get a hold of you? First of all, you can Google me. I spell my name, Rob, with two Bs. So R-O-B-B-K-E-L-L-Y. And the same thing, .com is the website, robkelly.com. Dr. Rob Kelly on Facebook. Um, if you want to Google anything, Google my, my robkelly.com. The book's always on there. It's available from Amazon. 
It's the last thing my daughter said to me, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. And then if anybody out there is uh, depressed or wants uh, any ideas or doesn't want to get in the program but needs a 10-minute pep talk or advice, call me. Call me on 214-600-0210. I will answer the phone, not my staff. Awesome. And I will put all that in the show notes as well. So I'll link to all that information as well. Rob, thank you so much for coming on and and talking with me and and just sharing your passion and your wisdom and your beautiful spirit. Absolutely. My absolute pleasure. It's been one of the best podcasts I've done for a long time. So thank you so much indeed. Oh, thank you. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 105. Once again, I appreciate all of you listening to the podcast, sharing the podcast and writing reviews on iTunes. That really does help get this podcast a lot of exposure. And I appreciate all of you who are doing that and getting the word out. Also, join our Facebook group, go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online there as well. Remember, you have the power to create good things in this world and in your life. So go and have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.